As mentioned, our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I'll read the text and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in his word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So reads the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung this morning of Christ as our shepherd, as we have thought about your sovereign hand working throughout history to bring about your plan of salvation, and as we have read from Isaiah the prophet and seen what will one day come to pass when Christ returns, so now we give our attention to this text in Matthew's Gospel, that speaks of all of these truths. And as we do so, we ask as ever that you would soften our hearts, Father, to receive your word. Implant it in us so as to have your way with us. Instruct us in the truth to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. As we have been working through Matthew's Gospel, we have seen a number of proofs that Matthew gives in order to justify the outrageous claim that he makes in verse 1 of his Gospel. Perhaps not outrageous as it comes to us, but to his original audience as Matthew begins this narrative claiming that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah, that 
claim needs some validation. That is world-changing to anyone that would read this book. And so Matthew then, for two chapters, lays out one proof after another. That is the function of Matthew's prologue. When we get to chapter 3, we drop into the life of Jesus, his public ministry. The first two chapters are all prologue, and it's a series of proofs that Matthew gives so as to justify the claim that he begins with in verse 1 of his gospel. As we've been working through these proofs, a number of things should stick out to you. One is that Matthew is particularly prone to draw on the Old Testament. A number of times he'll go back to Old Testament texts, and we should expect him to do that. Matthew was writing originally to a primarily Jewish audience, Jews who had not yet embraced the reality of Jesus as the Messiah, or Jews that had, and he was seeking to encourage them. So he was going to their scriptures. He's going to the Old Testament, their scriptures, and the way in which he gives proof that Jesus is the Christ is to show the notion of prophecies being fulfilled. As Matthew does that, I am aware that quite possibly for most here this morning, if not all, the question of Jesus as the Messiah is not one that plagues us, not one that troubles us. It's not a a barrier that we need to overcome in our thinking. We accept that Jesus is the Christ. For many of us, we were introduced to him in that very manner. We've never known Jesus to be anything other than the Christ. And so the question that Matthew is answering, the, the proof that he is giving, is not primarily one that is is difficult for us to embrace. So then that might lead us to say, so what use does Matthew 1 and 2 have in our lives? I'm persuaded of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, so so how do these chapters function for me? And I hope that you realize that in these two chapters, as Matthew lays out one historical piece of evidence after another, he is doing so much more than simply proving that Jesus is the Christ. I hope that in our last few weeks in Matthew, that fact has started to become evident. Consider the fact that if if Jesus was only being set forth as a Messiah here in a a, a historical manner, historical proof is being given and that were it, Jesus' narrative would be a far shorter narrative than it actually is. If Jesus wanted to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of the place of his birth, which is this morning's text, and that was all he was hoping to do, he would probably have said in one verse, Jesus was born in Bethlehem as Micah had said he would be. That's the proof. That's it. Given now. That's the box checked. The job is done. And yet what Matthew actually does is give us 12 verses, a relatively long narrative, informing us of the geographical location of his birth. And in that long narrative, he draws attention to certain details. He puts points of emphasis on certain features of the historical narrative. 
Matthew is doing things far beyond simply giving us a proof text. What Matthew is doing all the way through his prologue, and we'll see all the way through his gospel, is that he is forging a theology concerning this man, Christ Jesus. Matthew is forging a theology that he intends to impress upon us, that we would take in and receive in our hearts and would transform the way we live our lives. Matthew is giving us, text by text, proof by proof, something of the glory of Jesus Christ. And as you look at every text in turn, understand that we are to be persuaded even more of his identity as the long-awaited-for king, but so also are we to receive a rich Christology, a rich theology concerning this man that is intended to shape the way in which we live. Arguably, in the ground that we've covered so far, Nowhere does Matthew do this more so than in our text this morning. There has been a lot going on in chapters 1 and chapter 2 so far. But it's in the first 12 verses, our text this morning of chapter 2, perhaps more than anywhere else, that we find the depths and the riches of the Christology of this man coming forth to us. The reason I say that is because this text is actually a constellation of Old Testament theology. A constellation of Old Testament texts that Matthew is drawing on. You can see one of them, certainly, and that would be the quote from Micah. That one is very evident to us in your Bible, is perhaps offset, and there's attention drawn to it. By virtue of the the words, it was written by the prophet. That's a signal that we're now going back to an Old Testament text. That one is evident. But there are at least two more embedded in the narrative, which are less clearly signaled to us, but are just as important as it relates to our understanding of Jesus. These first 12 verses of chapter 2 form a constellation of at least three Old Testament texts that bleed through into the birth narrative and speak of the manifold glory of Christ. Matthew is showing us here something of God's sovereign plan to make known the manifold glory of Christ in his birth. So our job this morning is to work through this constellation. We are, in a sense, stargazing. We're taking in the light of these 12 verses so as to better understand our Savior, so as to better worship Him and live lives that honor Him. How do we get into this constellation? How do we break into it and start to view it? The answer is that Matthew has greatly helped us in the very first verse. In the first verse of chapter 2, Matthew lines up what will be the salient features of this narrative. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. 
So there we have it. Those are the three features, the points of emphasis in this narrative to which we need to give our attention. The fact of his being born in Bethlehem, the fact that it was in the days of Herod, and the fact of the wise men, each of them lead us to an Old Testament text which informs our understanding of Christ and our worship of him. We'll take them in order and begin with the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem. These wise men come from the east. They followed the star and they meet with Herod. Herod is unnerved. He's troubled by the birth of this supposed king. And so he inquires of his chief priests and his scribes, where is the Christ to be born? Evidently, Herod is not a man familiar with the Old Testament scriptures because they all reply, of course... He's to be born in Bethlehem. Of course he's to be born in Bethlehem. That's exactly what the Old Testament teaches us. If indeed he's the Messiah, that will be his place of birth. And they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 1. O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. That's a quotation taken from the prophet Micah. Now, you remember back to last week when we dealt with another Old Testament text, one of the things that I said to you is whenever you see the Old Testament being quoted by New Testament authors, do not think of it merely in terms of a box-checking exercise. It is fulfilling a criteria concerning the birth of the Messiah. It is But the fact that Matthew sees fit to quote the text, to draw from the text, tells us he wants us to understand more about simply the fulfillment exercise. Every single time you see the Old Testament being quoted, the author is drawing on that text. This original text has a theology attendant to it. And Matthew is drawing on it. He's pulling on that theology in Micah and pushing it into his narrative. He wants us to read his narrative in light of the antecedent narrative. So then, what is Micah all about? Micah is one of our minor prophets. His name means who is like the Lord. You didn't come to church today thinking you'd get a Hebrew lesson. You just got one. Micah, the name, means who is like the Lord. It is often the case that the name of the prophet speaks something of his message. Isaiah, the Lord saves. That tells us something about his message. Ezekiel, God is strong. That tells us something about his message. Micah, who is like the Lord. The book of Micah is all about the perfection of God and in turn the perfection of his plan. What Micah does is set forth God's plan to his people and he proclaims this plan is without error. This plan is perfect. This plan is without blemish because it comes from a perfect God. Who is like the Lord, says Micah. Micah does this in two stages. Often the prophets divide their books into two halves, a book of judgment, many oracles of judgment, and then a second half, oracles of future salvation for the nation of Israel. 
Micah follows that pattern. And so Micah says to his people in the first half, there is judgment coming. He's looking ahead to the exile and he says, this is on the horizon for you and it is perfect. This is God's perfect plan for you. No mistakes when exile comes. And then he looks even further into the future and he says, and there is one day a glorious salvation awaiting for you. And it is perfect. In all of your waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, there is no mistake. As you yearn for your future salvation, God has not forgotten about you. His plan and his timing, the execution of that plan is perfect. Who is like the Lord? That is the message of Micah. A linchpin text within Micah is the one quoted in Matthew 2 today. A linchpin text upon which it all hinges is this king who will be born in Bethlehem. And there again we see the incredible perfection of God. No one else would have planned it like this, but God does. He displays his glory by ordaining that the Messiah would be born in a town like Bethlehem. Meaning, Bethlehem had no reputation. No one ever expected anything good to come out of Bethlehem. And that is is exactly the way the Lord works. It is still like that today. In the Lord's wisdom... Bethlehem remains a town that really has not much to boast about it. If you go to Israel, you'll be impressed visually by Jerusalem. You'll be impressed by the old city and the Temple Mount. You'll be impressed by many things in Israel, not Bethlehem. It is a town of little repute. There's lots of tourists that go there. It's full of tourists because it's the birthplace of Christ. There's buses and buses and buses going into Bethlehem every day. But it doesn't have anything to boast about apart from the birth of the Messiah. And that was God's perfect plan. Now at Christmas time, we visit this text. This is one of our Christmas texts. We sing about the town of Bethlehem. But I wonder if you've ever considered why this humble beginning of the Messiah is perfect for you. We affirm it historically as a fact. We sing songs about it. But you need to understand the context from which it comes, which is a book wherein the perfection of God's plan is being made known. So why was it perfect that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And what we'll often say at Christmas, rightly, what we'll often say is... His humble beginnings in a town such as Bethlehem portend, look forward to, hint at his humble earthly ministry. That's absolutely correct. We champion that. Look how he began in a manger as an infant in Bethlehem. And oh, how that speaks of his humble earthly life. Yes, but why was that perfect? Matthew answers that question by adding what I call a crystallizing text to the quotation of Micah. The very last line of the quotation there, 
who will shepherd my people Israel, is actually taken from another Old Testament text. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you might see Micah 5.1 listed. You might also see 2 Samuel 5.2. Micah gives us the reality of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Matthew takes the liberty, and he is at liberty to do this. He takes another scripture and adds it on the end to crystallize the theology of the birth in Bethlehem. He takes from 2 Samuel 5, wherein David is crowned as king over all of Israel, and the people flock to him, and the people proclaim him to be their shepherd. God says, you will shepherd my people Israel, and the Israelites say, yes, you are our shepherd. And that crystallizes for us why Christ's birth in Bethlehem was perfect. Because it portends not merely a humble earthly ministry. It speaks of the fact that this king is coming as a shepherd. It tells us that his humble beginnings project forward to a humble earthly ministry as a lowly, loving caring shepherd and that is exactly what each and every one of us needs consider the fact in your sin you were dead spiritually lifeless you had nothing going on spiritually if God had sent a tyrannical king heavy-handed who was going to boss people around and only thought about himself, you would still be lifeless today. Dead in your sins. You had nothing in you that considered seeking salvation. There was nothing that you contributed to your salvation. So the last thing you needed was a tyrannical king who also would care nothing about your salvation. What you needed in your dead and lifeless state as a sinner and an enemy of God, what you needed was a shepherd who would seek and save the lost. The only way in which you might be given life, spiritual life, eternal life, is if a shepherd came to seek you out. And if you are in Christ this morning, understand that whatever your testimony may sound like, theologically, Christ the Good Shepherd came and found you. He found you when you were not looking for Him. Consider the fact that Christ the humble shepherd came to one who had declared himself to be an enemy of God. Through your actions and your thoughts and the meditations of your heart, you had declared yourself to be an enemy of God. And a tyrannical king who was full of pride would never have approached such an enemy and said, I'm going to bring you in though you don't deserve it. That's not the way of a despot. The lowly earthly shepherd says, I know who you are and I am coming to save you. I know you're an enemy of God. But my mission is to come and bring you into my fold. You need a shepherd, to be found in Christ this morning. Consider the reality of your sanctification. Do you have any idea how many times you fail Christ daily? 
And the answer is no, none of us do. We fail Christ daily, hundreds of times. We're in this this journey of sanctification, of striving to be like him, informed by his word, what he requires of us, and yet we fail him continuously. I find that in the mornings when I I come to the word and, and prayer, I've been awake for 10 minutes and I have things I have to confess. In 10 minutes, I have found things that have not honored the Lord in my heart, in my thoughts. The alarm clock sounds and I grumble. I failed him. That's his providence. It's his providence that this hour has come and I have to get up. So don't grumble. You fail Christ daily, if we had a tyrannical king for a savior, he would be done with us. I brought you in, though you didn't deserve it. I redeemed you. I forgave your sins, though you didn't deserve it. But you fail me daily, so you're done. You're out. That's how a tyrannical king would respond to us. The shepherd does not. The shepherd who is Christ perseveres with you. He goes along with you knowing more fully than you do all of your failures. He never, ever gives up on you. We have a shepherd who in John 10 says, I know my sheep, they are in my hand and no one will snatch them out of me. No one will snatch them from my hand. If he has saved you, you are safe in his love and you will never be found outside of it. And you can sin and sin and sin and he will not let you go. He won't let you persist in that sinning for long, but he won't let you go. Because he is a shepherd. Consider the fact of your final glorification. You need a shepherd to see you to that last day. If we served a dictator, a despot, if we served an angry, mean savior, should you make it to the end, when you enter into his presence, most likely he would begrudgingly bring you in. He would turn up his nose and say, well, you're here now, so go sit over there. I'm eating my meal and you. We serve a shepherd. Which means on the last day, he will celebrate your arrival. Knowing all your failings, he will celebrate your arrival in glory. When you arrive, he will celebrate you before the heavenly host. And you won't be far from him in his kingdom. You will stand face to face. And he will pull up a chair and say, sit with me to eat. That is what it looks like to have a shepherd for a savior. And that is exactly what we need and it is exactly what God gave to us. You see how this has implications for your life. As you learn more of the riches of Christ's glory, it can't but affect.
affects the way you live. We're to be good sheep. When you consider the shepherd that God has given us, what response could there be but to say, Lord, make me a good sheep. Fashion and mold me to be a good sheep of this shepherd. To live every day in obedience because of how good he has been to me. Now that's the significance of him having been born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. This leads us to another facet of Christ's glory by virtue of another Old Testament text. He was born in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod, in Matthew's narrative, functions in in two ways. One, as the complete polar opposite to Christ. So there is something of a, a, a contrast being forged by Matthew in this text between Herod the king and the king of the Jews. Notice the wise men's announcement. Their announcement is not, where is the one who will, who will one day in the future be called king of the Jews? That's not what they say. The truest sense of their announcement is, where is the one who right now is king of the Jews? How they knew that, I don't know. But somehow they knew that this child was king of the Jews. So immediately, as we enter into this text, there is a a contrast. Two kings are on display. Herod, a king, and Jesus, the king of the Jews. And there is an intentional contrast being set up between them. Another way in which Herod functions in Matthew's prologue all the way through, not just here, is that he is being likened to many Old Testament kings. So think about last week. We studied the reality of the virgin birth. That led us back to Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, we saw a chessboard of kings, none of whom deserved to be called that. There was the king of Syria, the king of Assyria, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, all worthless kings. And in in that context, the prophecy of the virgin birth is given. Matthew quotes it, so he's pulling that context into his gospel. And one of the inferences, we are to see Herod in the likeness of those worthless Old Testament kings. Again, in this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Herod is supposed to be seen in the likeness of one particular Old Testament king. The Old Testament king to whom I'm referring is Balak, the king of Moab. And you say, who on earth was Balak, the king of Moab? You do know him. He was the king that commissioned Balaam. Balaam was the guy that had the talking donkey. It's a well-known Old Testament Sunday school lesson. God can cause a donkey to speak, right? Balak was the king that commissioned Balaam, who had the speaking donkey. Balak, the king of Moab. So why is it that we're intended, or we're supposed to see Herod in the likeness of that Old Testament king? There are a number of parallels that suggest that we are. Balak was a foreign king. He was threatened. 
by Israel. He saw the nation of Israel. He didn't like what he saw. He felt threatened by them. He was unnerved by the Israelites. He commissions a pagan prophet, Balaam. He hires him, and specifically he hires him to speak curses over the Israelites. Balaam can't speak those curses. He opens his mouth, and no curse is found. But some of the richest blessings bestowed upon Israel in all of the Bible. God's plan will not be thwarted. Fast forward to Matthew's day. We have a foreign king named Herod. He is threatened by one Israelite. The text tells us Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. There's an understatement. He feels threatened by a child. So he hires or commissions or instructs some foreign men. Now, we'll talk a bit more about the wise men in just a minute, but suffice to say for now, they would have been men of authority, interpreters of dreams, understanders of of things, spiritual things. Herod commissions them, not specifically to speak words of curse over the child, but to aid him in a plan that is far worse. Herod's Herod's plan is far worse than Balak's plan. Balak said, just speak bad things over them, trusting that they would then come to pass. Herod says, my intention is to kill this child. And what I need from you is some very special information, so help me in this. Of course, he's lying, but the dream made plain to the wise men that they wouldn't be part of this plan. So Herod seeks to kill the child. The wise men have no part in this. The wise men not only avoid going back the same way because they receive the dream, but as it relates to their interaction with the baby, they fall down and they worship him. And if you study that one verb to worship throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there is one occasion when Jesus uses it within a parable. Every other occasion that verb is reserved for the worship of Christ. There are people throughout Matthew's gospel who fall flat on their faces to worship the Christ. I don't know what the wise men knew, what they thought, what was going on in their hearts as they worshipped him, but they are aligning themselves to some degree with the worship that we see all the way through the gospel that is befitting of this man. They worship him. They don't facilitate a plan to kill him. They fall on their faces. And they honor the king of the Jews. God's plan will not be thwarted. Now do you see the radical implications for your life? If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, I can't offer you much encouragement. I can't offer you much consolation when the world doesn't go the way you would like it to go. When your circumstances are not what you would have them be. I can't say much to that. 
I can't say if you are not in Christ. I cannot say it's okay. This is going to work out. I can't say God's in this. You can't see him, but I promise you this is for your good. And one day when you get to glory, you'll see it. Because those things cannot be said of someone who has not been reconciled to God through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you are here with eyes of faith saying, I see what the Bible says about Jesus and I believe it with all my heart. If you are here and you say, I accept Jesus at his word. That's all that's being asked. I accept him for who he says he is. That he has made a payment for my sin. That he's the king over the whole universe. That he demands my worship. I believe it all. If that is you and you are in Christ. Then to have been knit together with this king who is a representative of the truth that God's plans will not be thwarted, now I have all the counsel in the world for you. Whatever circumstances life presents you with, God is in this. He hasn't made a mistake, I promise. I can't explain it. I don't know why he's brought about these circumstances, but I promise on account of God's word, he is in it. And he is for you in it. He's not against you. In Christ, he is never against you. He is always, always, only, totally for you. He is working out good purposes, the extent of which you cannot fathom. And rest assured, he will be glorified in your life. You will get to glory and look back and see with increased understanding and say, I now understand that it was best. That is the proclamation of the Christian. Whatever God brings about, however little we may understand the specifics, we are able to say, based upon the word of God, this is God's best for me. He never gives you anything other than his best for you. If he's withheld something, it's not his best for you. If he has given you something, that is his best for you in accordance with the plan that you have not yet taken in. We had a phrase in our house for many years during very trying times. Think back, we were having our children, lots of littler children in our house than there are now. A few hours of sleep. I was still in seminary, which means even fewer hours of sleep. We had this car that would just break down all the time. And it was, it was difficult to pay bills and make ends meet. And, and we, we felt the strain of life. We felt the reality of living in a broken world. And daily things would come up. And Laura, more than me, she would just remind me and say, this is God's best for us today. This is God's best for us today. Do you believe that? Is it something that you say in response to your Savior, Jesus Christ? Because that is the narrative that Matthew is giving to us. That's the theology he wants us to embrace. God's plan will not be thwarted. I mentioned last week in 
evening service of having read a, a biography of Eric Little, the Olympic runner and then the missionary to China. And the reason I cried so much at the end of the book, as you may know, is because he died in a, a prisoner of war camp in China just months before the end of the war. So he never got to go home and see his wife again. He never met his third child. And the world looks at that testimony and says, a wasted life. What kind of God does he serve? A wasted life. But one who has taken in the biblical Christ says that was God's best. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I don't know why God in his providence didn't allow that man to go home and see his family again before going to glory. But that was God's best. And I promise you, Eric Little has been singing that reality now for a long, long time. With God, he would say, that was God's best for me. This is the truth of the Christ child whom Herod sought to kill, but the wise men worshipped. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, and behold, verse 1, wise men came. This is the third point of contact with the Old Testament, and again, it informs our understanding of Christ's glory. How? The wise men come from the east, and evidently, they have some knowledge. I think as we read texts like this that are familiar to us, we can often lose sight of just how peculiar they are, how strange they are. We return to this text every Christmas, occasionally in between, and so we lose a sense of just how strange are the goings-on in Bethlehem on this particular night. The wise men come from the east, Following a star. Well, hold on. <laughs> Where did the star come from? Why did they know to follow the star? Why did the star indicate to them that a king had been born? How did they know of these things? Why did they bring gifts to the child? Why did they worship him? The questions are seemingly endless. And Matthew doesn't care to answer them. There are many questions that he does not answer. Some would suggest that their coming is in some way a, a downstream benefit, influence of the Israelites that went into exile. Think about Daniel who went into exile and had knowledge of the scriptures and would have passed on those truths. Perhaps there is an ongoing significance of his being there teaching people such that these wise men understood what the star signified. We don't know. But in God's providence, the wise men come following a star and they arrive at the very place that Jesus had been born. And when they arrive, they fall down worshiping him. They're overcome with joy, verse 10. verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then they offer up these gifts. Now what on earth is going on and what is the theology that Matthew intends for us to understand? Earlier this morning we read from Isaiah 60. Not accidental. 
intentionally chosen in light of this text today. If we had time, we could walk through the book of Isaiah and see that there is a theology that Isaiah gives over and over again, wherein he understands one day the nation of Israel will finally do that which God had intended them to do, which is the nation of Israel will one day see their Messiah and acknowledge him as their king. All through the prophets of Isaiah, he is saying Israel is not doing right now what God intends for them to do, but one day something's going to happen where one day they see the king in his beauty. And when they see him, they will be utterly transformed. Isaiah chapter 6 is a microcosm of that theology. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is functioning as a miniature Israel. He sees the king on his throne. He acknowledges his sin and confesses it. The Lord cleanses him and makes him useful for service. That is what is to be true of Israel, the nation. But they keep sinning. In Isaiah 60, the prophet projects far into the future. And he says, one day the nation will do what God intends them to do. It all hinges upon them seeing the king in his beauty. And when they do, they will be utterly transformed. And then, and this is the important point for our text in Matthew, when they see the king and are utterly transformed, then they become a means by which the nations come to God. The Old Testament scriptures said Israel were to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of intermediaries by which the nations stream to the king. And Isaiah 60 depicts that reality. In our text, and it goes on throughout the whole chapter. Read Isaiah 60 this afternoon and be edified in your hearts to see how glorious is this vision that the prophet has. The nations stream to Israel and they come bearing gifts to honor Israel because they want to get to the king. Isaiah said it's going to happen one day. In Matthew chapter 2, we get the very first iteration of that vision. Now, it's not fulfillment. Matthew doesn't use fulfillment language. He merely alludes to it. Matthew would not say, here the prophecies of Isaiah 60 have been fulfilled. He wouldn't say that. There is but one Israelite. And there are but three foreign men. Men of authority who may have well have been in service to the king. Only three of them. But nevertheless, they come. And they come bearing exactly the gifts that Isaiah speaks of. And notice Isaiah 60 verse 1. It all begins at the dawning of a great light. The significance of the star in Bethlehem was representing the great light that will one day shine over the whole earth that Isaiah 60 spoke of. A light has shone, the wise men say. This is important. They knew their book of Isaiah. I have to go. 
So they make the journey, they bring the gifts, they find the Israelite child, the king, and they worship him. And Matthew is saying this is just the first expression of things to come. He's not saying it's fulfilled, but rather he's saying through this child, one day, this glorious vision will be fulfilled. One day, through this child, the glorious gospel of Isaiah will reach its fulfillment. The challenge to you and I is to embrace such a glorious gospel as we find, both in Matthew 2 and in Isaiah 60. In the Western church, our gospel is often reduced down to a bare minimum. I prayed a prayer when I was 10. I raised my hand at this conference and I I went down the aisle and I I gave my life to Christ and my sins were forgiven. I was in, I did it, I got the ticket and, and there is nothing in your life that represents that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. All too often that is the gospel that we affirm. We boil the gospel down to a transaction that has no implications for your life. I prayed a prayer. There is no place in the Gospels where Jesus beseeches you to pray a prayer for the fact of your salvation. He calls you to discipleship, to pick up your cross and by faith follow him every day. That is biblical Christianity. And with it comes a universe-shaping theology. If you are determined to live your life In submission to the word of God, the gospel that you affirm cannot be boiled down merely to a transaction that has no implications on your life. Because it's not biblical. The biblical gospel is one where you you set your faith on Christ as the payment for your sin. You understand that a transaction has taken place. His robes for mine. It has happened. There's a transaction but now your life has been brought into a universe-shaping plan. The gospel doesn't center on you. It centers on Christ. And you are one of thousands of millions brought into, swept up into this glorious plan. A plan that Isaiah says one day will see the nations streaming to the king. That's how broad the gospel is. Sometimes ask people, did, did sin affect just your heart? Or do you believe that it affected every corner of the entire universe? Which is it, A or B? The answer, they say, well, it would be B. It, it, it affected everything. Sin isn't just affecting here, but it's affecting everything. And so I say, don't you think then that the gospel would address every corner of the universe and not simply what's going on in here? This is the plan of salvation that we are commended to meditate upon, to embrace in our hearts and in our thinking. And to trust that as we immerse ourselves in God's glorious plan of salvation, as made plain through the birth of this child, our actions will fall into place 
around his commands. Our obedience flows from our worship of Jesus. And by being born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod, when wise men came, Matthew instructs our worship. Let's pray to close. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod when wise men came. We praise you for your providence, for your incredible sovereign hand, moving nations, raising up kings, tearing down kings for this moment when Christ was born. We see in your plan of salvation, not merely prophecy being fulfilled. Christ's child was to be born in Bethlehem. We see the fulfillment of prophecy, but more than that, we see this was part of your perfect plan to give to us a shepherd. Your perfect plan was to give to us lifeless, dead in our trespasses and sins, a shepherd who would come to seek and save the lost, who would bear with us in our failings and who would see us into glory. We praise you this morning that Christ is our shepherd. Father, we see in this text that Herod was just another king who was seeking to thwart your plan. Like the kings of old, he was just another king that sought to thwart your plans. And your plans will not be stopped. Your plans will only succeed. And in so much as we are knit to Christ by the gospel, so we understand that your plans will not be thwarted in our lives. You only intend good for us. You only intend to bring about your glory in our lives. Whatever the world would say, whatever our hearts might tell us about our circumstances, the word of God tells us that you are working out a perfect plan for us. In Christ, we see your goodness and we embrace it. Father, we see in your text that as these wise men came to worship, they are simply treading out the path of Old Testament texts that speak of a universe-shaping gospel, one that affects every corner of your creation. One day, salvation will extend to the far ends of the universe and it will be plain for all to see and the nations will stream to the king. Father, forbid us to foster in our hearts a small gospel. Forbid us to foster in our hearts a gospel that doesn't align with the Bible. But teach us to embrace a biblical gospel 
one that understands the, the transaction of sins forgiven and righteousness bestowed, but embraces the call to discipleship and understands that as each and every one of us have been called into life in Christ, we have entered into an enormous plan. We are but one local church in an enormous plan of salvation. And we rejoice. And as we meditate upon that reality, so then our lives truly will be shaped in obedience to the King. May this be the reality in our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.